Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I'd love for you to join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 17. Paul is writing to the church in response to having to leave so suddenly, uh, getting several folks uh, in this community to know Jesus and begin to pursue him. But then because of severe persecution and threat of life, uh, Paul was forced to leave. uh, And they woke up one morning and Paul wasn't there. And so some of them felt quite perhaps abandoned or left behind and maybe that Paul didn't care about anything other than maybe just himself. Uh, We're presupposing some of these things. But Paul is writing to kind of remind them of his love and his care and uh, reminding them of the things that he didn't really get a chance to to tie up and hopes that when when he does come back that he'll be able to pick up from where he left off. But uh, verse 17 begins... But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. See, what he's saying is, I I, I haven't, just because I left didn't mean I didn't care. And because I left doesn't mean that I don't still care for you. So in my heart, we're still connected. But we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. I mean, I I didn't leave because I wanted to leave. I left because I didn't have an option. And in verse 18, he says, because we, and that's important because Paul is writing this on behalf of himself. So whether he's talking about himself and the Holy Spirit, or maybe, maybe he's talking about Silas and Timothy who have been with him and left with him as well. And most people believe, most scholars believe that, that when Paul was writing this, uh, that someone else was writing it for him. And so it'd be really easy later for when, when somebody is reading this and Paul said, well, we really wanted to come back. To you. Well, yeah, we did. Silas and Timothy maybe, but Paul, you're the decision maker and you didn't stay. And so Paul says, I, Paul, again and again. So specifically, I want you to know that I'm the one who keeps trying to lay plans to get back to Thessalonica because you matter to me and because I love you. So the way this would be written in English would be especially me over and over again. But get this, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. So I know what God wants. God wants us to make disciples. I know what I want. I want to be there in Thessalonica. But Satan has other plans. Now, I don't know if Paul had a difficult time having his visa renewed. That's a joke, by the way. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Paul had gotten sick. I don't know if Paul was uh, still still fearful of the persecutors or the trek back. Uh, I'm not sure if maybe Paul isn't just talking about being hindered by peace. I just don't feel that God has opened the door for me to go back. If you know what that feels like to be able to trust God and to know what God wants and to have that peace. I don't know how Satan is hindering them, but Paul definitely is seeing Satan working against them. So verse 19, he says, For what is our hope or our joy or our crown? And this is an incredibly important choice of word. In English, you would miss it entirely. But there's two different Greek words that are crown. One of them is diadema which is a, a leader, a king's crown. It's one that the, the ruler wears to prove his sovereignty. The other word is stephanos, which is a victor's crown. It's someone, if you were to compete in the Olympic Games and you win, it was that laurel wreath that they put on your head to prove that you were the victor. And that's the word that Paul uses here for what is our, our victory? What is the proof that we succeeded, the proof that we've won in this life? of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? You are the victory. You are the proof that my life matters. Watching Christ revealed through you is what matters. What Paul is saying is maybe in defense of his ministry was all about him and all about his numbers, but what Paul was saying is my ministry is for you. That's what the proof is. For you are our glory and joy. 
What is our hope? What is our joy? Is it not you? Almost rhetorically? You are our hope. You know, we don't, we don't draw joy or hope from our own actions. And these are some philosophical things that I want us to understand from what Paul is kind of laying down here, okay? If you're looking for joy and if you're looking for hope in your life, you will not get it by your own actions. If you do, they will be very, very temporary and incredibly short-lived. But where we get joy and where we get hope is by our actions producing actions in others. Paul is saying, you are the litmus test that what's happening in me is real. You are the proof that, that God is producing life through me. See, disciple-making, when Jesus left, he told us to make disciples. Disciple-making is the goal of our faith, producing Jesus in others, not just having Jesus produced in us, not just saying yes to the gospel, not just being saved, but replicating that life as we work through this life. That's what Paul is saying. It's producing Jesus in others. It's seeing Jesus in others. And Paul is incredibly upset because his time of developing them has been cut short. He didn't get to invest the full measure that he wanted so that he could see them bear up and grow and become more like Jesus. And he knows that his life would have been cut short had he stayed. But he also knows that those very baby Christians are still in the pressure of that. Did they get enough to be able to withstand it? And he's nervous. We've been talking about hope over the last couple of weeks, a living hope. And, and what, if, what if I told you that hope cannot be realized until you plant it in someone else? Hope isn't something you can attain. Hope is something you can give. And then once you give it away, you get it back. We live in a pretty selfish society. I think most of us would probably agree to that. And everybody's trying to be joyful. Everyone's trying to be filled with hope. Everyone's looking for opportunities to be hopeful. And it's, quite, it's, it's isolated us quite a bit. But I think what Paul is trying to get across to us is that the way joy and hope work is that it doesn't work. It's, it becomes very circumstantial unless it's given away. When the angels came and told the shepherds of Jesus' birth, they said, joy to the world. Remember that? So joy belongs to everybody, but everyone doesn't experience joy. That's a really, that's a really interesting thing. If you think, well, Jesus came to bring joy, look at the news. There's not much joy. I mean, Jesus either failed or we misunderstood. But joy can belong to everyone, but not everyone will attain it. Because everyone won't accept Jesus, and they forfeit the joy that belongs to everyone. So I, I, just, I was just thinking about this this week, and I want you just to watch this for just a second. Just examine it in your own life. I want you to think about yourself. Let's just pretend that you want joy or, or hope. Let's use those interchangeably for a moment because we know that, that faith looks at the past. We've already talked about these things. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, faith looks at the past, hope because of the faith, hope is able to look into the future. Because God has been faithful, God will be faithful. That's where my hope is in. And in the middle, right, what I'm, while I'm waiting for the hope to be realized, it frees me up to be able to love and to point people to faith and to point people to hope. Once we achieve hope and we can look into the future, that's where joy comes from. So joy follows hope. So if you want to have joy without hope, that's happiness. Happiness is a very poor substitute for joy, and it's circumstantial. Joy actually lives down here. Hope exists right here on the mouth, and it depends upon every moment's decision. That's where happiness exists is, I didn't get my way. Ooh, I should be happy. That's why people get into a really bad situation in their life, and they, they say, I deserve to be happy. No, you, you should be joyful because joy will override those moments of unhappiness. And it will keep you focused into the future so that you can see beyond the circumstances and your perspective can begin to shift. 
And we're going to watch that happen in Paul this very moment. So I want you to take out your lasso and just pretend, okay? You don't really have to do this. It'd be awkward. Uh, But I want you, so I need joy. And what I want to do is I want to attain joy. So I'm going to throw it around the one who brings joy, and that's Jesus. But I want you to recognize that this lasso or whatever, what's it called? The batarang? I don't know what to call it. What is it? Not a lariat. It's got a hook at the end of it. A grappling hook. There it is. Yeah, so, so all this is a grappling hook, right? So uh, you throw this grappling hook out and you grab a hold of, of joy. And what you have to do is, is that actually, in order for you to receive it, that, has, that grappling hook has to run through everybody you know. Okay? So as you bring that joy into other people's lives... That's where you you keep bringing it through people. You keep producing it in people. And that's when you begin to be fulfilled with it, right? So I want you to think about first, if I'm going to have joy, I've got to figure out how to get to Jesus. Once I have Jesus, I have to figure out how to bring Jesus into the lives of those around me. And after I realize that and begin to see Jesus being produced in people around me, that's what actually fills me with joy. Otherwise, your faith becomes very selfish. And so you think that I'm going to be filled up with joy, then I'll give it away. But here's the problem with that selfish kind of joy. You'll never feel feel filled up. You'll always feel like there should be more. There should be more. There should be more. There should be more. And you just keep paralyzing your faith. And we're never looking to give. We just look to get. And we start thinking about salvation becomes just a checkbox. Yeah, I received Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to heaven. That's not the point of your faith. That's the beginning place of your faith. The continuation of that decision is that Christ is being produced in me, but that I am investing in others and seeing him being produced around me. So if you want hope and joy in your life, give it away. It's the only way you get it back. By the way, Jesus, others, and then you. That's joy for those of you who are waiting for the next thing for me to say. If you spend if you spend your 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 faith looking for happiness you 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 it, it must happen you will turn god into your genie and your prayers become wishes and and your happiness is always determined by your circumstances But if you'll invest Jesus everywhere you go, what will begin to happen is you'll begin to see that the joy that is so much deeper, it can't can't be stolen. The joy then becomes a tool that the Holy Spirit will use to shift your perspective. And so while you are looking at darkness... You're tempted to lose your happiness. But when the joy of the Lord is your strength, you'll be able to see beyond the circumstances and your perspective has potential to shift. And you can give that away in a world that God has blessed us with so much brokenness that it is so easy to give hope away. I don't think it's ever been easier for Christians to be able to encourage and give hope away like it is now. But the problem is Satan is hindering us because he has us distracted. He has us focused on the moment. He has us focused on our circumstances. He has us focused on our need instead of the needs around us. So I want you to look and evaluate your life by the life of Jesus. And I want you to evaluate where Jesus goes. Does Jesus focus on his needs? Does Jesus focus on his joy? Does Jesus focus on his circumstances? Or is Jesus always looking to give that away? And when Jesus gives that away, it's always to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus is refreshed and Jesus is renewed. He's the model for this. According to Paul... Hope can only be found 
when it's given away. That's where you, that's where you know. And when you get it back, it's joy. The things that we want most in this life, peace, joy, hope, are found in relationships with one another and, and found in relationships with unbelievers. It's where we can actually be, be active in our faith as we instill and encourage Christian growth in those around us. Joy cannot be found in pursuit of possessions. Joy is found in a pursuit of people. Shoot over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the only chapter in the entire book of 1 Thessalonians that doesn't include the word hope. And it doesn't have to include it because it's implied with the first word, therefore. Now, you know, if you've been around for very long, anytime you see the therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? That's right. Those of you who haven't been around a while, you'll, you'll hear that again. Anytime you see therefore, you can't, start, you can't start the context with a therefore. It's because these things are true, this next thing is going to be true. So we have to carry that over, okay? So we, he's actually talking. He ends the chapter 2. Well, he doesn't end the chapter. This is a letter, right? We put the chapters and verses in. But he, the last statement was about hope. The last statement was about joy and glory, all right? So therefore, because of hope and joy... We continue. We could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. Then verse 2, Paul tells us how he was so concerned that he sent Timothy back to them from Athens. So Paul was in Berea for a while. Silas and Timothy were in Athens for a while, and they were going to all get back together again in order, in order that he might establish that church in Thessalonica and to comfort them in their faith. He sent Timothy, rather than back to himself, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. So apparently Satan is hindering Paul. Satan isn't hindering Timothy. And we need to be established in our faith. And that's what Paul recognizes is that that church that I invested in and had to leave so quickly, they need more than they received. And I'm, and I'm telling you, if we, once we say yes to Jesus, that's just the beginning. That's not the goal. They had already said yes to Jesus, but they need developing. They need discipling. And they need to learn how to become disciple makers because that's how you can stand fast not just make a decision to believe in Jesus. There's no power in that. There's no life change in that. So Paul is choosing. An established faith is what shifts perspective. And this church, and Acts chapter 17 tells us that one of the leaders was Jason, who had already been taken out into the street and threatened and had to come up with all sorts of money uh, in order to avoid prison time. And all, I won't get into all of that again. But he, he knows, Paul knows that this church is struggling. He knows that they're in persecution. And he also knows that there's a time limit to their being able to withstand that, that the pressure will continue to increase and increase. And if they're not established when the difficult, more difficult darkness comes into their life, they might walk away from their faith and by the way I would say that's still very true once you say yes to Jesus you don't have this supernatural ability to overcome all things we have to be established in our faith we need we need to be we need to be dug in deeper and deeper and continue to mature in our faith and if you think that Satan is not going to threaten new believers that's boy he targets them These folks were just babies in Christ. They had just become born again. And the persecution come against Paul had become so severe, he leaves. And if there is no discipleship, there can be no disciple making and there will be a giving up. And you know the hardest people it is to reach? The people who feel like they've already been reached. It's the hardest people to reach. The hardest, the hardest people to receive Jesus are the ones who have grown cold and don't know it. People who walk away and think they're still hot. 
Paul reminded them that reminds them that he had told them in advance that tribulation would come. He was appointed unto tribulation. Look at beginning in verse 2. And he sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker, <laughs> in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And Paul's saying we, he's talking about himself. You know, I told you when I was there that times are going to get tough for, for me. Now, think about this. When, when Paul first received Jesus uh, on the road to Damascus, and he went, uh, the Lord went ahead and told Ananias, hey, I've, there's a guy coming to you. His name's Saul, Tarsus, and he's going to come, and you're going to pray over him, and he's going to see again, and I'm going to use him in incredible ways. And Ananias said, no, 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 I know that Saul of Tarsus. I don't want him anywhere near me. He said, no, no, he's changed. By the way, I already told him that he was coming to you. So Paul goes to Ananias, and, and in Ananias' defense, Ananias is saying, I don't, want, I don't want this persecutor, this murderer to be near me especially because of my faith. And the Lord said to him, told, told Ananias, hey, you need, to, you need to just worry about yourself and do what I told you to do. I'm paraphrasing. Do what I told you to do because he's going to suffer much for my name. So Paul knew at the very beginning of his ministry that there was going to be a lot of suffering in order to stay faithful to the Lord. And so apparently as Paul goes and establishes his churches, he tells them, Hey, don't be shaken when I get taken into prison. Don't be shaken when I get beaten in the street. Don't get shaken when mobs of people are around me and hurling insults because, because the God gave me this ministry. And so they saw that part of it. And I know that it probably elicited fear in them. But he's telling them, you, you knew that this was a part of, of my ministry and we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it had come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul knew in advance that preaching of the gospel was not going to be easy for him. That it would bring persecution. And Paul didn't teach an easy belief of accept Jesus and move on. But typically, he had enough time to walk out difficulty with them. They were able to watch him struggle. Watch him deal with persecution. Watch him work those things out. But he didn't have a time enough to walk that out in Thessalonica. This is kind of proof that accepting Jesus isn't, well, I wish you know my heart when I say this, but simply accepting Jesus isn't the goal of our faith. But modeling it is. Because he'd already told them, but telling them wasn't enough. Modeling for them was the goal. Modeling for them. And you know, if you're going to teach a world of brokenness how to stand fast, we've got to model that. And so sometimes difficulty comes into our life so that we can model that for people around us. But if we're not established in our faith, we too will be overcome. He had walked through a lot of trouble. He knew how to bear up. They didn't. And he was afraid. And I can imagine the anxiety. One of the things, if you go back and you look at all the things that Paul ever wrote to the churches, it seems to me that one of the things that Paul did not like was being alone. Because when he was alone, he talked a lot about the people who visited he talked about a lot of the letters that he received, the encouragement. It was so good for me. It was so good. When you did this, it was so good for me. So we know that when Paul was alone, he would get in his own head. One of the things that I think Paul didn't like the most was being alone. And so here Paul is, sitting in a different city all by himself. And Timothy and Silas, Acts gives us the chronology of this, but Acts, or, uh, Timothy and Silas are in another city together and it comes time for them to get together. And Paul was getting ready to call Timothy to come to where he was because he really needed Timothy's ministry. 
Paul said, when I could bear it no more. The anxiety of not knowing what is going on in your faith affected me so much. Two different times when I could bear it no longer. I sent Timothy to you. I want you to think about the kind of love that that takes. Because what I think most people would do is when they're feeling abandoned and when they feel lonely, it'd be really easy for Paul to say, you have each other up there in Thessalonica. Thank God for each other. I've got no one here, so I called Timothy to come and encourage me. Paul forfeited his personal encouragement so that Timothy could go and encourage and establish the church that Paul wanted to establish. You look at the selflessness of that. Paul had an opportunity to be selfish. And I don't think any of us would have accused him. When I could bear it no longer. Paul was yeah, maybe being a little selfish. He wanted to go. He wanted to be the disciple maker. He wanted to be the one that brought the truth into their life. But Satan continued to hinder and to frustrate his plans. And Paul was confident because he had always been a one-stop shop disciple maker. If anybody could help the church at Thessalonica, it'd be the apostle Paul to walk in and say, all right, here's how we're going to organize and you do this and here's what you do in this situation. Paul had never struggled with that. He was doing it with Timothy. He'd done it with Silas. He'd done it with Barnabas. He'd done it with everybody he'd ever traveled with. He was the guy. He was the voice. He was the church planter. He was the preacher. He was the one that was, I mean, everybody else was just like Paul, but Paul was the one put in prison. Paul was the one who kept being the center of attention. And so if the church at Thessalonica needs something, guess who gets to be the answer? Paul. But I want you to look at this. This is really incredible. Satan is also under the complete sovereignty of God. He can only do what he is allowed to do. And I want you to understand this fully. When you think about, and you've heard me say this before, but some of you may not have. When you think about God and Satan, we often think that they are at odds with each other. Like, like, you know, God, God has a plan and then Satan makes a chess move. You know, they're playing cosmic chess together. Now, God doesn't play chess. He is sovereign and sovereign means that he overreigns all things. So any hindrance that Satan would be possible to uh, accomplish in Paul's life is still under the sovereignty of God himself. God is allowing all things to happen. God never says, uh-oh. God never says, what will my move be now? God always knows, and he uses Satan to hinder Paul. Because we know what Paul would do. Paul's kind of a, I don't know. I don't know what he is. Maybe belligerent. I'd love to minister with him, but I don't think we could be friends. So Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not all-knowing. Some people want to say that Satan is the opposite of God. That is not true. It's, in fact, it's laughable. Satan is the opposite of a good angel. There is no opposite of God. There is none like him. God's plan is not being thwarted by Satan here. Satan's hindering Paul is a part of God's plan. Because Timothy also needs to be developed. And Paul is a little bit not seeing things. Paul doesn't know how to not give Timothy opportunities. So it's kind of awesome that since, Pete, since Paul can't go, I'm going to send Timothy. And when Timothy gets there, he lights them up. Timothy does a great work, comes back to Paul and says, hey, don't worry about them anymore. They got it. You know what Paul starts to do after this encounter? You know what? When he writes to the church at Ephesus, hey, I'm going, to send, I'm going to send Timothy to you. To the church in Macedonia, I'm going to send Timothy. Church at Ephesus, I mean, uh, Corinth, I'm going to send Timothy to you. And, and Paul starts sending Timothy everywhere that Paul can't be because Satan hindered Paul's ability to go to Thessalonica. I couldn't bear it anymore. I had to do something. I'm sending Timothy. Timothy becomes a disciple maker, not just a disciple of Paul. In fact, when Paul is in Rome in his last days, and he thinks about all the people that could come and minister to him. He says, please send Timothy. I need Timothy to be with me. 
Sometimes God uses circumstances in our life to develop things in us that we didn't know needed developing. Sometimes God, I've, I've, I've counseled with a lot of people and I've been able to see that when you, don't, when you can't go along with muscle memory and something gets in your way, it's not necessarily a whole, all hope is lost. It's so that we will consider things in our life that we can't consider when we're comfortable. And yet the pursuit of our, of our life is comfort. The pursuit of our life is ease. The pursuit of our life is, is pleasure or happiness. And so sometimes those things are hindered so that God can produce things in us that we wouldn't have considered otherwise. This is where Paul's love quotient increases. Paul loves to be the answer to his own prayers. Not here. When life is frustrating and you're unable to do as you would like, even if it's good, it's a chance to consider options that you wouldn't have noticed if you were comfortable. It doesn't do away with God's presence. It just causes us to consider growth and trusting Him. You know, misery loves company. And Paul's miserable because he could bear it no longer. But instead of choosing his own comfort, he chose the comfort of the church. And when Timothy brought word back from Thessalonica, he's about to tell us this. But when Timothy brought word back, the comfort and the joy that Paul felt was so much more than the joy he wanted initially. Paul saw Timothy as his helper, but Paul needed to see Timothy as God's helper. And so Paul chose love instead of comfort. He chose to live open-handed instead of living comfortably. He chose selflessness over selfishness. He gained hope and joy through giving. But he goes on, he said, you know, even though he might have been a little short-sighted and a little selfish, it wasn't purely selfish. I mean, he was moved for their good. He said, no one be moved by these afflictions. I mean, he, just, he didn't do it because he wanted something. He wanted something for them. He just wanted to be the answer to his prayer. Frustrations were used to cause growth even in Paul, and he did grow. He moved forward from curiosity to following Jesus, from following to preaching, from preaching to developing preachers and pastors. Paul was getting really, really good at addition ministry. But God wanted in this late 50s AD movement of church was looking for more of a multiplication ministry. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Sometimes we settle for a settled Comfort, a comfort that costs nothing, a joy that requires nothing, an opportunity to invest in someone, an opportunity to give an encouraging word to someone, an opportunity to pray with a coworker or a neighbor, a look for an investment in the spiritual development of someone. And you know what? We say to ourselves, you know what? I'm really uncomfortable. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. I don't want to. And we give all these excuses, but the ultimate goal is there is, I just don't want to risk anything. Thank God, you know, thank God that you're here. Thank God that I'm one of yours and I'm just comforted by knowing that I'm one of God's children. But that's a settled comfort that risks nothing, that costs nothing. What we as, as God's people need to do is to be able to step out into brokenness and speak the words of Jesus into people even when it's uncomfortable and it may risk your reputation. It may risk your comfort. It may even risk your job. 
But we are called to trust God. And we are called to speak his his word. You want to know why we have so little joy and so little hope? Because we're not investing in people around us. We're so judgmental, criticizing, having our own opinionating. Instead of just stepping out and saying, can I pray with you? Is there anything I can... I love doing this, especially when I go out to eat. Look at a waitress or a waiter and and say this to them. Say this all the time. Hey, listen, I'm about to pray over my meal. Is there anything that I can pray with you about? Simple. I've never had anybody say, weirdo. I've had a lot of waitresses cry. I don't think I've had any say, weirdo. When I'm out mowing my grass and I see a neighbor and I walk up, how's things? Good. Except this thing. Can we pray about it? It's one thing to be for people. It's another thing to be with people. And there's some people we can be with, investing in them. Walk up to a stranger. I mean, so many of you, we've been talking about this in several discipleship groups. And and so many of you have come to me with stories where you have just taken a deep breath and saying to a stranger, do you mind if I pray with you about that? And just watching the room change. Now, let me ask you this. You can walk away from that and feel good about your relationship with Jesus. But how much different is it when you risk yourself to speak life into other people and you walk away and can't remember taking steps because the comfort and the joy and the hope is so elevated because you can only get it when you give it away. If you're not willing to risk it, you can't receive it. The Apostle John said that he has no greater joy than to know that his children walk in truth. Now look at verse 8, what Paul says in verse 8. Now this is in response to, we just heard how well you're doing. Timothy just came and said, you're doing great. Look at this. For now we live. Knowing that you're doing well is like a breath of fresh air. And when I couldn't take it any longer, I had to do something. And when I heard the good news, now this is living. Now this is living. If you are standing fast in the Lord, this is what gives my life meaning. Can you imagine not building your name, not building your resume, not building your reputation, not amounting possessions, not having momentary happiness, but seeing others follow Jesus. Seeing others remain steadfast in difficulty. Now that's living. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? As we pray most earnestly, day, night, and day, that we may see you face to face. Paul, I can't be there. I can't speak to you. I can't call. We can't FaceTime. Can't do a Zoom workshop. But I can pray. And I want you to know that I'm praying for you day and night. And when, I, when Timothy comes back and says you're getting it, guess who prayed for you? I, I wasn't there. Thank God for Timothy. But I'm still investing. And God is answering my prayer. Paul says, this is, really, this is really life. This is really life. Seeing others stay in the midst of trouble. We're joyful because you are an answer to our prayers. We are praying for you to grow in your faith, and that is exactly what you're doing. And, and I want to be able to be there face-to-face again because I know that there are some issues, and doctrine really matters. Truth really matters. Listen, if you let a little bit of error come into a doctrine and you start applying that, eventually that little bit of corruption in your truth will corrupt every other truth. And so Paul knows that they've not been thoroughly equipped. He knows that they've not been thoroughly taught. What they have is enough for this day. But I still want to get back there face to face to supply what is lacking in your faith. And he's going to spend the rest of the next two chapters talking about what a few of those things that they're lacking are. But it is so important for them to have the foundation of the truth of God's word, and they didn't have it. They don't have the book at First Thessalonians. They don't even have the Gospels haven't been written yet. They don't have the New Testament. They have the Old Testament. 
and they're in Thessalonica. There are, there are certain benefits and advantages of saying yes to Jesus, but you need to go deeper into the Word of God. You see, the Word of God is a powerful thing. In fact, the Bible says to us in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing. So how are we going to have faith? Hearing. Faith is, looks backward and sees the faithfulness of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. So you have the living Word, which is Jesus Christ, the epitome of the truth of God, the Father. Then you also have the written Word, which is the Scripture. If you want to know what the Scripture means, look at Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus is, interpret Him through the Word of God. These things are very consistent. They do not contradict each other. The written word and the living word. If you take the word of God and you apply it into the seat of your soul and you become alive in your spirit, now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit is in you, can take the living word that's being replicated in your life and the written word that you are reading and ingesting and it turns into the rhema word of God, which is God's Holy Spirit word for you. So it's the truth, but it's also the application of the truth to know what to do with the truth of God. It's when the Holy Spirit speaks, and that too is very consistent with the written word and the living word. That's what Paul is saying here. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of God, God's specific word, speaking to the inner self. And that's lacking in their faith, and it's very, very important. You see, the rhema word of God is the DNA. You know, if you know anything about DNA, you know that, that DNA is the, has in it the ability to recreate the original. And that's what God wants to do in and through you, is to take the DNA of Jesus Christ and implant it into you, the truth of God planted into you, and you become a replication of the original. Without the word of God, that's impossible. That's why 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Go back to just the last chapter. In chapter 2 of verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So here's the questions that I want to wrap up with. Is the, is the DNA, do you know, how can you know how can you prove that the DNA of Jesus is in you? There's only one way to know, and that is you become a recreation of the original. Christ is being produced in you. Are you reproducing the original? I'm not talking about in your own head, in your own justification, because if you are reproducing Jesus, do you know what Jesus does? He reproduces himself in others. That's how, do you, because of your investment in people, are you seeing people becoming more and more like Jesus? That's how you know that the DNA of you is being transferred. Are you being distracted, pursuing only your personal comfort? Does that, is, is your own comfort what makes decisions in your life? Are you being distracted by fear? Are you being distracted by a faith that is lacking because you're not spending time in the Word of God, Jesus' presence, Jesus' truth, and the Spirit? Are you, are, in your faith, has it become so muscle memory that you never think outside of it? There's no risks being taken at all. Are you focused on you and your development and your life, or are you focused on others? You see, the way to real living and the way to hope and the way to joy is to see your investment in others producing Jesus. See, Paul grew hopeful and joyful as he saw Timothy develop too. His circumstances didn't change, but his perspective did. Hope isn't dependent upon circumstances changing. It's on your perspective changing. And that's not possible without hope 
The right perspective can only be found from the Spirit's word to you. That has to be filtered to the truth of Jesus' life and the truth of the Scripture. I want you to just think of all the people in your life. And I'm not going to ask you if you need hope, because we all need that. I'm not going to ask you if you could use a little peace or if you need a little joy. That's it's rhetorical. But I want you to think about the the reaching out to obtain those things. Are they dependent upon circumstances changing in your life or are they dependent upon your perspective changing? And the only way your perspective can change is through the truth of God. Knowing what is real and and reaching through people around you in order to be able to receive. So I want you to think about the people in your life that you can invest in, that you can encourage, that you can pray for until you can pray with. Think of the things that are currently sidelining you from investing and really living. Think about all the distractions. And you say, you know, and if I were to ask you about your daily time with God, you could say, you'd say, I don't really get to do that like I know I should because fill in the blank. And that's what I want you to think about for just a moment. What is it that's distracting you? What is it that's keeping you away from hearing him speak? Maybe you're frustrated right now and you need to consider what God is doing in this very moment. Maybe you're going through something and you're like, I don't know why Satan is in control of my life. He's not. God is at work. And you need to consider what God is trying to do even when Satan tries to hinder So maybe you need to surrender to Jesus instead of trying to get out of your trouble. Not just in a moment that created the crisis, but in every moment. And I want to give you a moment or two now. Just close your eyes, bow your heads. I really don't want anybody looking around. This is this is just, you know, me either. But I want to give you just a moment, maybe two just to process with the Holy Spirit where you are, for what purpose you're living, who you're investing in, the hope and the joy that you need and the the thieves of hope and joy and the power that we give these thieves. And I want you just to ask for a moment, Lord, what do I need to do to be obedient? How can I invest in people? Who, who is it that you're giving me right now that I can invest in? What are the situations in my life right now where I'm not considering what you're doing? Where are you fighting against God? Why would you settle for happiness? in a moment when you could have joy unspeakable and full of glory. So right now, if you've never surrendered to Jesus, you've never made him the object of your life, ask yourself, what is standing in the way? I mean, the only thing that you're really avoiding is joy and hope. Direction, peace, love. The perspective changes. Why would you settle for circumstance changes when it could change your life? Maybe I'm just maybe you've not recognized that you would never say it this way, but so filled with fear of the risk that Satan's hindrance has neutralized you. What God would do is God would have you take one step over that fear and walk into life. What are you willing to sacrifice your own comfort so that others may be filled up? People around you are capable. Who are you empowering So many things that we learn here in this passage. But I want you just to ask the Holy Spirit now where you are 
and what you need to be able to be obedient to him. When I finish praying, I don't want you to leave until you make a decision to take that next step, whatever, whatever you, you decide that it may be. If it's salvation, if it's repentance, if it's a call to ministry, if it's a realization of now I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know what to do, I need some help. Don't leave today until we're able to process that together. I think we just, every now and then we just need a moment where we can just get together and just take a, just a deep breath and recenter on why we exist. I want to close this time the way Paul closed this passage with a prayer for you. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Lord, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the power of your presence. Thank you for the power of the indwelling of your spirit. I pray that we would, like Paul, choose selflessness, that we would continue to desire, and just our passion would be for the growth and the steadfastness of brothers and sisters, that we would look for opportunities to invest we would look for opportunities to encourage. We would look for opportunities to lift the arms of one another. We would begin that in our homes. And Lord, that that would radiate out into our fellowship together and that our fellowship would lift the arms of our neighbors and that our neighbors would be the arm lifters of our community. Lord, I pray that you would create in us a passion to provide what is lacking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.